let's get after it. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. If you're like me, you need a page number for Lamentations. All right, that's okay. 685 is what you'll be looking for in that black hardback. Page 685, uh, Lamentations chapter 2. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. I'm glad to have you here. We're in the middle of a sermon series going through the book of Lamentations uh, for the season of Lent. And Lent is the 40 days before Easter, and the church as a whole, globally, kind of takes a time um, before Easter to self-reflect and to think about perhaps things that she needs to repent of and to do a little soul-searching. You've heard, I'm sure, the practices that go along with Lent. Sometimes people will fast, sometimes people will give up certain things or add certain spiritual disciplines in their life. Lent is this time of preparation for Easter, where we realize that Easter Sunday is coming, resurrection life is coming. But before Easter Sunday comes Good Friday, comes the cross, comes suffering, comes trials and temptations. And even in our lives as Christians, we experience these trials and temptations and sufferings. And so Lent is a time for us to kind of focus in, to do some soul cleaning, if you will, before Easter Sunday approaches. Now we pick Lamentations to be our guide through the season of Lent. Uh, Lamentations is a series of poems lamenting or complaining or protesting the destruction that Israel experienced at the hands of the Babylonians in the 6th century. So Lamentations itself is just five poems. It's just five independent poems written by Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he weeps over this absolute and total destruction of a city, of the temple. Their whole world has kind of been torn apart. Um, the, the closest comparison we have probably is 9-11, where kind of you have to rethink everything about the world as you knew it. The Israelites are kind of left stunned, those who are left alive, stunned, trying to piece together the tragedy that's in front of them. And Lamentations is written as this, this kind of witness to the suffering and tragedy and tears that they had over the destruction uh, that came their way. It's written in acrostic, so these poems are acrostics. So chapter 1 is an acrostic, chapter 2 is an acrostic. What that means is it goes by letter, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So it's highly stylized poetry. Try to write an acrostic, okay, tonight at home. It's harder than you'd think. This takes time and practice. This is an artist writing lamentations, and he is expressing his lament. In chapter 1, we saw last week there were two characters. There's the narrator, and then there is... The woman Zion, or Jerusalem personified, the city woman. She kind of speaks as if she is a woman about what has happened to her and to her children. We'll see in chapter 2 these same two voices, the narrator and then woman Zion. If you're in chapter 2, um, the narrator gets most of the time in chapter 2. Uh, he speaks up to verse 20, and then in verse 20 through 22, woman Zion speaks and makes a case, pleads her case uh, to God. Um, last week, the lesson we kind of learned from Lamentations was that you and I as Christians need to relearn the art of lament, um, the ability to complain, to voice our frustrations and struggles and pains and doubts and confusions to the Lord. We have inadvertently sometimes created a Christian culture where you're expected to be happy all the time. And no one is happy all the time. And you are shamed or kind of ignored or pushed aside if you're honest about the fact that sometimes life just stinks. Sometimes you feel far from God. Sometimes you're being overwhelmed by this situation or that situation. Now in the scriptures, over one-third of the psalms, so the worship songs that the Israelites sang, were lament songs. They were complaints. You don't often go to churches, though, today and hear sad songs being sung by the worship leader, right? 
life is so great, we just don't want to be alive anymore. Let's take the offering up. No, it's, it's happy songs. It's Everyone's put together on stage, right? Life is perfect. We've got this all figured out. But in, in the scriptures, in their form of worship, there are these multiple witnesses to the fact that sometimes we don't have it figured out. Sometimes we're disoriented. Sometimes in a world that's fallen, we feel the weight of that fallen nature. We feel the weight of that sin and that suffering and that pain. And so we need to learn how to lament. We need to learn how to be honest before God and before others about our struggles, our, our, our doubts, our pain. If we don't, I mean, we kind of saw last week, it turns into anger. It finds ways to, unhealthy ways to come out in our lives. We aren't able to receive love from other people. We isolate ourselves. And so chapter one was this great example of what it is to lament, what it is to be honest about where you are in front of God. Chapter two picks up the kind of story, the kind of lament. Again, you have these two voices, the narrator and then Lady Zion. Just like last week, we've recorded uh, the voices so that you can kind of follow along as you listen. You can read along or you can just listen. It's up to you. The translation will be a little bit different, uh, but you should be able to follow along. Uh, just one or two things to notice. Uh, the name of God, okay? When you see Lord, all caps in your Bible, this is Yahweh. So you'll hear Yahweh on the recording. This is God's personal name. When you see Lord, capital L, then uh, O-R-D, just regular, that's Adonai. You'll hear Adonai. This is just a title for God, Master, King. Okay, so this is the Imitations 2, as recorded at FC Cubed Studios. How Adonai in his anger has set daughter Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the honor of Israel, and he did not remember his footrest on the day of his anger. Adonai swallowed up without pity all the dwellings of Jacob. He broke down in his overflowing rage the fortresses of daughter Judah. He brought down to the ground, defiled in dishonor the kingdom and her princes. He hewed down in his burning anger all the strength of Israel. He has turned back his right hand from the face of the enemy. He has burned against Judah like a flaming fire, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has taken a stand with his right hand like a foe. He has killed all that was desirable to the eye. In the tent of daughter Zion, he has poured out his rage like fire. Adonai has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has ruined her fortifications. He has multiplied in daughter Judah, morning and morning. He tore down his booth like a garden. He destroyed his appointed place. Yahweh caused feast and Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion. He spurned his indignant anger against king and priest. Adonai rejected his altar. He abhorred his sanctuary. He delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They clamored in the house of Yahweh as on a feast day. Yahweh planned to destroy the walls of daughter Zion. He stretched out a line. He did not turn his hand from swallowing. He caused fortress and wall to mourn. Together they languished. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He destroyed and shattered her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. There is no Torah. Indeed, her prophets have found no vision from Yahweh. And elders of daughter Zion sit upon the ground in silence. They put dust upon their heads. They put on sackcloth. 
The virgins of Jerusalem hang their heads to the earth. My eyes waste with tears. My bowels are infirmed. My bile is pouring out on the ground because of the breaking of the daughter of my people. As the child and the infant are fainting in the streets of the city. To their mothers they say, where is the corn and the wine? As they faint like the mortally wounded in the streets of the city. As their lives are poured out on the breasts of their mothers. What can I say for you? What can I compare to you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter Zion? For great as the sea is your breaking, who can heal you? Your prophets saw empty and vain visions for you. They have not uncovered your iniquity to turn away your captivity. They have seen for you empty and vain visions. All passerby along the way clap their hands against you. They hiss and shake their heads against daughter Zion. Is this the city that they say is the perfecting of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies open their mouths against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They say, we swallow you up. Ah, this is the day we waited for eagerly. We have found and seen it. Yahweh did what he planned. He accomplished his word that he commanded from days of old. He threw down and did not pity, and he caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He raised up the strength of your foe. Cry out with your heart to Adonai, O wall of God of Zion. Let tears run down like a torrent, night and day. Do not let yourself stop. Do not let your eyes be still. Arise, cry out in the night at the head of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of Adonai. Lift up your hands to him, concerning the life of your children, who are fainting at the head of every street. Look, Yahweh, and pay attention to whom you are acting so severely. Should women eat their children, the children they have raised? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? The young and the old lie down on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men fall by the sword. You killed them on the day of your anger. You slaughtered. You had no pity. You summoned as on a feast day terrors all around. And on the day of the anger of Yahweh, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I carried and I reared, my enemy destroyed. There you have Lamentations chapter 2. We've got to be honest, God does not come off looking so great in Lamentations chapter 2. Uh, seems to be this kind of angry, angry person who's caused this vast amount of destruction to Jerusalem. Um, to walk through the chapter real quickly here, there are three kind of big structures, three parts to the chapter. You have verse 1 through 10, and then there's a change in verse 11 through 19. And then, of course, daughter Zion speaks in chapter uh, verse 20 through 22. But in, in verses 1 through 10, you have the narrator kind of listing off verb after verb after verb, all the things that God has done to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy his people, to destroy the temple. God comes off as this very kind of angry, mad, almost out of control person unleashing his judgment on Israel. Over and over again, it's said that he casts down. There's this downward motion. He's bringing down. He's <coughs> casting down. Twice the, the text says he swallowed up Jerusalem. He swallowed up 
the land. The theme here is the anger of the Lord, his wrath. It, it burns like fire, the narrator says. And then in verse 11, something happens. Something very dramatic happens in verse 11. The narrator, who up to this point has been fairly objective. In chapter 1, you could say the narrator was pretty emotionally distant. He was just an, obs- uh, an observator. He, he was just someone who was kind of reporting as a neutral observer on the facts of what's happened. It seems like he's a little bit more emotionally intense in verses 1 through 10 as he piles on these verbs what God has done. But then in verse 11, something breaks inside of him. And he says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. The narrator is now affected by the pain of Zion. It seems as though it was really the suffering of the children that ends up getting him. He looks out at the destruction of the city, and it's seeing the young boys and the young girls and the infants dying and fainting on the streets that breaks him. And he enters into Zion's pain. He enters into the pain of the city, and he experiences it. He, he sees the infants crying to their mothers for food, fainting, their life being poured out on their mother's bosom. He says, verse 13, a very important verse, What can I say for you to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? Notice the titles he's giving her, these sweet, tender, gentle titles, O virgin daughter of Jerusalem. In chapter 1, he blamed her for the destruction. He said, you were an unfaithful lover to Yahweh. You were the one who committed adultery and sinned. You're receiving your punishment. In chapter 2, he seems to have been affected by the suffering that Zion has, has received and it's putting the blame more on God. It's saying, O virgin daughter of Jerusalem, what can I compare your suffering to? The answer would seem to be nothing. There's no comparison. Although he attempts to make a comparison, he says, Your ruin is as vast as the sea. Which in the end, though, might not be a comparison. The sea for the ancient Israelites is this symbol of chaos and destruction. It's this kind of unending force that you can't contain, you can't box in. He says, that's what your suffering is like. That's what your pain is like. It's like the roaring sea. He asks this haunting question, who can heal you? Your prophets have seen false deceptive visions. They haven't prepared you for this destruction that's coming. In verse 16, all your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we've swallowed her. All, this is the day that we longed for. Now we have it, we see it. What you need to know about the acrostic is verse 16 and 17 are in reverse order, alphabetically. So if it was English, it was A, B, C, D, this would be A, C, B, D. Does that make sense? 16 and 17 reverse the alphabet here to draw your attention. It's about the enemies destroying him. And then verse 17, Yahweh has done what he purposed. This is the narrator's conclusion here. This is God's action. The human enemies are just agents in the hands of God. He has commanded long ago. He's thrown down with that pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you. He's exalted the might of your foes. God himself has turned against Zion. Now, Lamentations throughout the book will offer differing perceptions on who God is. God himself does not speak in Lamentations. He offers no self-revelation, no um, self-portrait. There's kind of differing perceptions of God in Lamentations. And here's what we should say at the, the beginning here. Lamentations wasn't written to try to teach you about God's character. Does that make sense? These poems are more truth about a subjective feeling than they are truth about an objective reality. 
So the poems are true in that this is what they are experiencing. This is how they are experiencing God as this angry, out-of-control deity. But Lamentations is not trying to write you a, a neat, tidy, systematic theology. God is actually like this, and God does this, and God does this, and God does this. These are their honest experiences of God. He ends, he says, Daughter Zion, cause a scene. Create a fuss. Lift up your voice. Don't stop crying, and maybe God will see you. Maybe he'll respond to you. And so she does. She says, look and pay attention. These same two verbs you see in chapter 1, ra'ah, navat, look at my suffering, pay attention to me. She holds back no punches. She says, Yahweh, should mothers eat their children? Is that the kind of world that you desire? Is that the kind of setup that you want? Look at the situation. Be changed by the situation. Come to our rescue. You summon like a feast day, but instead of everyone coming together to worship you, they've come together to kill, to destroy your very own people. Now there's no response from God again. In chapter 1, there was no response from God. In chapter 2, there's no response from God. What's most remarkable, though, about chapter 2 is the narrator. It's what happens to this voice, who's this objective, distant speaker in chapter 1, who then enters into Zion's pain in chapter 2, and in verse 11 is broken. He's converted. If you remember in chapter 1, what Zion wants, what the city woman wants, is for someone to see her pain, for someone to pay attention to it. She doesn't ever ask to be rescued. She doesn't ask for the situation to be fixed. She just asks for someone to see it, to pay attention to it. And she says, I have no comforter. There's no one to comfort me. I have no comforter. And in chapter 2, what happens is the narrator becomes her comforter. He, looking at her suffering, is brought into it and is broken by it and starts weeping and starts crying and starts addressing her. He takes on the role of witness, of advocate, of comforter that she's been asking God to take on. I think the lesson here for you and I this morning as we, we walk through the Lent season, last week it was we need to learn how to lament. This week I think we need to learn how to suffer with those who are lamenting. We need to learn how to be comforters, how to be witnesses, how to be advocates to those who are suffering. What you see uh, kind of modeled by the narrator in chapter 2 here is that comfort is provided by coming close, by experiencing another person's pain, by looking at it and paying attention to it, by listening, by recognizing, by acknowledging the pain they're experiencing. What the, the narrator doesn't try to do is wrap it up nice and neat or give like a theological platitude. Sometimes we do this as Christians when we see someone suffering. We try to shortcut their suffering and try to lead them to this happy place, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but, but someone's died or, or someone has just gotten a diagnosis and, and you're kind of in this place of suffering and someone comes up to you and goes, well, just remember Romans 8.28, all things work out for the good, for those who love him and are called for him. That is the wrong response, okay, in a situation of suffering. When someone says that to me, what I want to do is punch them in the jaw and say, don't worry, everything works out good, right? <laughs> There's conversation over. There's no more need to talk about our feelings and how much this hurts or anything like that. Let's just shortcut it all and go to the happy ending. No, he doesn't do that. He comes close and says, I see your pain. I have no answers. If I were you, I would yell at God. I would cry out to him. I would try to get his attention. I would try to get him to see your pain the way I've seen your pain. And the narrator doesn't try to explain away the suffering. He doesn't say, as he did in chapter 1, this is because of your sin. 
He doesn't say this is because of this plan or that plan or this plan or that plan. He just says, I see it and I acknowledge it. You remember the story of Job. Job experiences this great amount of suffering. And when his friends show up, they try to explain it to him. And it's the wrong response. Job goes, I thought I hit rock bottom and then y'all showed up. He's trying to explain my sin to me. He's trying to explain why this is happening to me. I just need you to sit here with me and suffer with me. I just need you to come close with me. I won't be comforted by you trying to wrap this up in a nice bow. I'm going to be comforted by you sitting here, by you sharing in my pain, by you suffering with me. There was a guy named Nicholas Rolsterstoff who lost his son on a mountain climbing accident. He was 19 years old. Uh, And so he goes through the grief of losing a child. And he writes a book about the process of grieving and mourning over the loss of his son. His son's name was Eric. And he talks about various people's reactions to his mourning, to his grieving. Some good, some poor. Uh, He writes this, and I thought it was appropriate. He, He says this, Whatever you do, please don't say it's not really bad. Because it is. Death is awful. Demonic. If you think your task as comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief, but you place yourself off in the distance, away from me. Over there, you're of no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. To comfort me, you have to come close. Sit beside me on my morning bench. He says, don't try to tell me that this is really not that bad. Don't try to tell me that there's really this greater plan that I'll be thankful for one day. Right now, in my mourning and in my grief, I just want you to sit with me. I just want you to validate the pain that I'm experiencing. I want you to say, I understand. I have no answers. Cry out to God. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul is giving advice to the church in Galatia, and I think he um, speaks on this issue. Not only do you and I need to learn how to lament, but we need to learn how to suffer with those who are lamenting. Because what can happen in a Christian community where people aren't used to lamenting is someone starts to lament, starts to complain, starts to be honest about their struggles and doubts, and it creates isolation. No one wants to hear it. They're ashamed. They're pushed aside. When in reality, lament should create community, should create the sense of solidarity. You should come together. I don't know if you've ever uh, experienced this. Um, There's a reason we push laments away. There's a reason we push that out of our minds. It's because it reminds us of our own junk. It reminds us of our own struggles. Have you ever had someone kind of unloading on you about a situation in their life, and all you can think about the whole time is like, look, I got my own problems. Right? I mean, I can't, I can't deal with your problems right now. I can, barely, I can barely keep my own life afloat right now. Yeah, hearing other people's stories of suffering, it kind of stirs up our world a little bit. It has the tendency to, to bring up things that we haven't fully dealt with. It has the tendency to kind of make us think maybe the world's not as neat and as ordered and as clean as we want to pretend it is. We, we, we are forced to stop pretending the world is perfect, and we're perfect. This person's not perfect. I was on a retreat a couple years ago, and uh, I was speaking at this retreat. One of the parent chaperones, because I guess I was the speaker, and a pastor thought that this weekend was the week for him to kind of just unload on me and try to get off all his problems. Now, 
Um, what you don't know is, is that that weekend was a low weekend for me in my life, okay? I mean, I was barely getting out of bed. Sometimes speakers, preachers, pastors even have lull moments in their life. I know it's hard to believe, okay? But, but sometimes everything's not hunky-dory. Everything's not peachy. And so I'm kind of just struggling to get through this weekend. And this chaperone, this dad, is, is unloading me about his drug addictions and about all the problems in his home. And the whole time I'm like, just please stop talking to me. I barely got out of bed this morning. I can't handle your problems right now. I'm praying at night and I'm like, we, Lord, whatever happens, just let him not talk to me tomorrow. Because there's a sense that, that when he's unloading on me, I'm feeling all of my pain and my weight, and, and I haven't even been able to conquer that yet, and this is just more and more and more on top of me. But he's feeling this freedom, right, from sharing. He's feeling this weight being lifted off of him. If you look in Galatians 6.2, Paul instructs the, the Christians in Galatia to do this. He says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Christian community, you and I, First Colony Christian Church, should be a place where you and I get to unload our burdens off onto other people, onto a community around us. The, the metaphor, the language you use a lot about this is, is weight, right? The, the, this kind of emotional suffering comes in on us and we feel the weight of it. And by sharing, by having someone come close to us and sit in it with us, we're able to unload some of that weight off. You know you're doing this right when you start hurting for the other person. Again, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but, but you see someone else suffering or someone else hurting, and it has nothing to do with you. There's no overlap to your life. But you see it, and you pay attention, and it hurts you. And you start to feel the weight. And some of that weight is lifted off of them. Bear one another's burdens. We've got to learn how to lament. We've got to also learn how to suffer with those who are lamenting. Not to come with quick and easy theological platitudes or axioms. Not to try to wrap it up in a happy ending and, and kind of short circuit the grieving and mourning process. But simply to come close and say, I see your pain. And now I feel your pain. And let's cry out to God together. We could call this maybe despair work. Our laments should lead to community. We should learn how to be honest with each other, to bear each other's burdens. Laments also lead to action, leads to advocacy. When you fully experience someone else's pain, when you step into it, then all of a sudden you're involved. You're, you're an advocate for that person, for that problem. Uh, you can think about a parent who has a child with a debilitating disease. And, and often these parents end up becoming really involved in uh, organizations are starting an organization to find a cure for that disease or to find better treatments for that disease, right? Because at first it was just a name, cystic fibrosis. And you knew a little bit about it. You could have given it a little cute Wikipedia definition. You knew it was bad. But then your little baby boy had it. And you suffered with him. And you were up every night crying and screaming out to God. And all of a sudden you were transformed into an advocate, into one who would take action on behalf of your son and, and others who have cystic fibrosis. We learn to lament with others. It creates community. It creates an opportunity to give love and then to receive love as we lament, as we are honest and open with other people. But when we explain away suffering, we lose this ability. We lose the ability to come close. We lose the ability to comfort people. Um, 
Think about poverty as an example, okay? Extreme poverty around the globe. Economic global inequality. Poverty in our own country. If you're able to explain away poverty really quickly, then you can separate yourself from it. You can insulate yourself from that suffering. So poor people are poor because they don't work hard. There's the explanation. I'm over here. This does not bother me anymore. I've figured it out. I've solved the situation. And I work hard, so I won't experience that suffering. But if you come close to somebody and look and see their pain and you hear about their story growing up in maybe in a disadvantaged area without the resources that you had, or maybe experiencing the death of all their family around them and this crippling debt that came in on them and no community to support them, then all of a sudden you're unable to explain it away. You come in a little closer to their suffering. You become an advocate. This is why we've said before, if, if as Christians we're obviously called to love poor people, we're called to try to address the problem of poverty, but whenever you say, I love poor people, the question, second question should always be, what are their names? What are their situations? It's hard to love people from afar. You have to come close to provide comfort. You have to suffer with them to do something meaningful. The same with homosexuals, right? We have, a, as Christians, a bad PR uh, rep going on right now with, with Christians and homosexuals, okay? Christians are seen as hating homosexuals, as these kind of hateful, small-minded bigots. And we want to say, no, no, no. As followers of Christ, we love homosexuals. But the second question is, well, then what are their names? What are their struggles? What are the pains that they're going through, the situations they're dealing with? To suffer with someone who is lamenting you're required to come close, to see and feel and experience their pain. Now, interestingly enough, in Lamentations, God never speaks. He doesn't speak in chapter 1. He doesn't speak in chapter 2. At no point does God show up and wrap a nice bow in the situation and say, here's the explanation, here's what's going on, or stop complaining, or you were right, or you were wrong, ta-da, the end. He's silent, he's absent. There's a couple different ways you can interpret this. There's a couple ways you could explain this. One would be to say that God's silence and limitations is a way to give honor and dignity to the human voices of suffering. They have their own space. They're not silenced by God. It's okay to express these doubts and these confusions and this anger. Another way to interpret the silence, though, would be that it's a, another evidence of God's callousness. God's completely turned his back on Jerusalem. He's unleashed this fury over the city, and then he doesn't even care to respond as she cries, as she weeps out, as the narrator screams and accuses. But I think there's a better way to interpret God's silence and lamentations. What if the reason God does not reply, what if the reason he's silent in lamentations is because he's resisting the temptation to explain her suffering, to give a theological platitude, to short-circuit her mourning? What if, in fact, God's ultimate response to the suffering of his people and to creation as a whole is to, like the narrator, come close, see it, and experience it? As Christians, this is what we believe, that God has, in Christ, come close to our pain, to our suffering that he's experienced it, that he's suffered with us in our fallenness, in our sin, in our pain, in our ugliness. He suffered for us on the cross. 
If you have your scriptures, flip to Matthew chapter 27 with me. As Christians, we believe that God in Christ has come close to us. That's how he's responded to the pain of this world. Um, You'll never find in the scriptures an explanation for evil. You'll only find God's response. Even God himself resists the odysseys, resists trying to explain why there's all this evil in the world. What he does instead is he acts. And how he acts is by becoming a human being himself, the incarnation, and suffering. God himself experiences the depths of the suffering that humans go through. God himself dies on the cross, the Son being one with the Father. In Luke 19, um, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem on the way to the cross, and he stops before he gets to Jerusalem, and he sits there, and he weeps. Because he knows that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed once again in 70 AD, shortly after Jesus' death. Jerusalem is once again destroyed like it was back then. And he sits there and he weeps. God's reaction to the suffering of his people is to, to weep like the narrator, to weep like Zion. And he says, if only you could have seen the day of peace, but you reject me, and you run headlong into suffering and pain. And God in the flesh mourns, cries. He sees and experiences the pain of his people. And then in Matthew 27, in verse 39, we'll pick it up in verse 32, um, but you'll see an allusion here to, to Lamentations. Verse 32, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. This is the crucifixion scene. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And look at verse 39 here. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. This is an allusion to Lamentations 2.15. Matthew, in fact, alludes to Lamentations multiple times throughout his gospel. It seems to be in a pretty important text for Matthew as he's writing this gospel story. Jesus here on the cross is experiencing what Israel experienced in her destruction at the hands of Babylon as passerbys walked by, wagging their heads, saying, is this the city that was the perfection of beauty? Is this the city where God dwelt? He enters into our pain. He enters into our suffering. And people mock him. They passed by and derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Christ's response, God's response to our laments, to our pain, to the deeply, powerfully brokenness of the world is to enter into it, to experience it, to suffer with us to suffer on our behalf. God doesn't set himself over here and tell us that really it'll be okay. He comes and sits on the morning bench with us. 
And says, I know what it feels like. I know the pain. And in this way, he's able to offer us ultimate comfort, ultimate life. Hebrews 2 says, because he, Jesus, was um, suffered while he was tempting, because he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest who's able to empathize with our weaknesses. He was made like us in every way except for sin, so that we can be confident when we approach the throne that we'll find grace and we'll find mercy. We need to learn how to lament, relearn how to lament. We need to learn how to suffer with those who are lamenting, and we need to recognize at all times that God in Christ has come to suffer with us, has come close to us. It's interesting, the narrator points Zion to God. He says, cry out to God. Make a scene. Create a a scene. Make a fuss. Get his attention. I think so often when you and I are suffering with someone who's lamenting, the true path for us to take, the true kind of course of action for us is to lead that person in an interaction with God. I know I've found myself sometimes with people suffering, telling them a whole lot about what I think about God. When really all any of us needed was to go to God directly. Does that make sense? To directly engage with the God who came down and suffered on our behalf. Who can be silent in these situations and just go, I know. I know. You and I as a Christian community are called to bear each other's burdens. are called to learn how to suffer with those who are lamenting and then we take our cue from our God who, who came close to us and suffered with us and for us. And in this Lent season, as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection life brought to us from Christ, we also reflect on the trials and temptations that are in our lives, the ways in which the cross is what leads to the resurrection, and the ways in which I carry my cross and you carry your cross, and we carry our crosses together. By the power of the Spirit, as we continue <coughs> to grow in grace, and as a community, we'll be able to, to more and more bear each other's burdens. And in this way, comfort each other and lead us into worship. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the truth that, that in Christ you have come near to us. You have revealed yourself as the God who weeps the God who mourns with us and for us. It's the God who suffers with us and for us. You have seen and heard our cries and have come to rescue us. We pray, Father, that you would give us the courage and obedience uh, to lament, to be able to be honest, and and that you would give us the courage and obedience to be able to suffer with those who are lamenting, that we would not isolate those people or push them away or explain them away or ignore them, but we'd be able to come close to them and suffer with them, bear their burdens. And we give thanks for your life displayed through your Son, given to us in the Holy Spirit, Father. As we read in the Scriptures, our sufferings produce patience and endurance and hope, and hope that will not fail us because you are the resurrected one, the risen one. May we follow you in obedience and joy. What's in the name of the Father and the Son? And the Holy Spirit, that all God's people said. Amen. Amen.